time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy. Hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. Good to uh, see you. Good to be back. Yeah. Uh, we took a little bit of a break there for the holidays and then a little bit longer break. And, <laughs> and where's the time gone? Yeah. And we're about a month behind in getting started again. That's the way it goes when we're having fun, right? Yes. Yes. And having fun, indeed, we are. Um, this has actually not been too bad with the old pandemic and everything uh causing uh all the craziness but it's actually yeah. really doing shows a little bit easier for us in a way true yeah i haven't had to uh figure out when you know trying to coincide our schedules it's been a little more regular huh yeah and uh it's allowed us to bring in more friends you know uh, yeah the you know people people that we normally don't get a chance to uh to see and yeah. uh, speaking of which, we should probably uh, schedule something with our good friend, uh, John Blickman. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he'd be happy to do it. Yeah. I was just talking to him last week and uh, laying out plans for a BYO boot camp we're doing later this week. Nice. And, uh, yeah. He's always entertaining and interesting. Always got new things. That's the thing about Blickman Engineering is they're never resting on their laurels. That's never- right. Um, you know, just uh, making the same old thing again and again. They um, they improve it. You know, are always improving, always coming up with new ideas, new stuff, new new inventions. Um, you know, everything from the, the very top end and the and the professional size system down to the smaller uh, systems and the uh, more automated systems, right? Uh, and then you've got. Uh, um, one of those uh, uh, anvil systems. foundries and anvil foundry, right? Yeah, all in one, very nice little system. Um, yeah. Makes brewing simple. Yeah, see, I, that's what I need. I need to run this brewery <laughs> off of uh, an anvil foundry. You've got a, a, a thirty-seven barrel size of that? <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't believe so. But uh, I'm sure he could put one together. He probably have it ready uh, next week. Uh, that's that's how good Blickman en- Engineering is. Uh, check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, they are uh, uh, a longtime sponsor, and they help pay for the show, so you don't have to. So uh, please don't uh, don't miss out on them. Uh, we are uh, we were supposed to have our good friend uh, Martin, Martin. Uh, mm-hmm. Cornell uh, Cornell on today, but due to the <laughs> Time change. Uh, we seem to have uh, miscoordinated because I, I guess they're not changing their clocks the same time we're changing our clocks in the U.S. now. Um, so uh, we're off by an hour. So hopefully he'll be here uh, shortly and to talk about uh, Burt Nails. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we've got lots of questions from our faithful listeners. And I thought we could uh, knock some of them out. That'd be cool. 
Uh, Ron Barnes was asking, he's, uh, hello guys, have you ever brewed with spruce tips? How would you go about using them? I know Alaskan Brewing uses them in their winter ale and I thought they might be fun to play around with. Thank you for any tips or insight. John, have uh, you done the spruce tip brewing? I haven't. Um, I've had some outstanding spruce tip beers, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the way that they are used is uh, is basically after the boil kind of whirlpool right. additions, right. Uh, hot steeping in order to best extract the resins and flavors uh, without cooking them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, I think part of it is um, I've done some spruce tip brewing and I've been uh, part of, uh, you know, it tends to come out when people are doing some collab brews or they're doing uh, a big, big brew day or learn the home brew day. People didn't bring them out then. Uh, and a couple of things to note, I think you want the, uh, the freshest little tips uh, yeah. possible. Uh, certain times of year, they end up becoming more woody and you don't get quite the same uh, pungency from them. So they're, they're going to vary similar to hops, you know, and when you pick them and you want to get them at the right time. And other buds, yes. And other buds, yes. Um, certain hops are going to, uh, you know, help with if you want to accentuate that kind of character and you go with more of the resiny, piney type of thing. Um, but be careful because you can overwhelm your spruce tips. Part of the spruce tip thing, I think, is to not, um, uh, you know, it is to almost as a substitute for hops. So mm-hmm. generally a bittering addition. And then and, and one of my favorite um, uh, spruce tip beers uh, was, uh, you know, it always had kind of like an amber color ale. Oh, yeah. uh, I think some of the, that crystal malt kind of goes a little more old school, uh, you know, pale ale type of type of beer. Right. I remember having a spruce tip beer at one of the uh, national homebrew conferences, and can't remember which one it was. Might have been Minnesota. Might have been San Diego. I think it was Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had this spruce tip beer that had an overwhelming taste and aroma of fresh strawberries. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing heavy about it, nothing cloying about it, just a, a beautifully uh, flavored beer. And then I think it's the loose brews that they use for uh, spruce tips. Various types, yeah. Um, in Alaska, the ones that Jeff uses, I believe, are the blue or maybe um, uh, silver spruce up there. Uh, mm-hmm. You can use several varieties, and uh, you know, but you got to pick beginning of you know spring the fluorescent green tips that mm-hmm. are new growth. Mm-hmm. You don't want anything older because that's when you get into some heavy, you know, pine flavors that just aren't as nice. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, yeah, I remember also back. Um, Boy, maybe 15 years ago or so, maybe uh, it was uh, Brian Hunt from Moonlight Brewing. He made a Redwood uh, beer. Oh, really? 
and he used he used more like the branches and the leaves, <laughs> you know, just the tips. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really fascinating. Um, and I really liked it. I thought it was a well-made beer. And then, you know, the, the Redwood character was interesting. It kind of gave it a bit of a spicy, you know, but green, yeah. not, not as resinous. Uh, but I thought that that was really interesting. I thought uh, yeah. Brian's a great brewer. Uh, and uh, I thought that, that that really, for me, that was unusual. But uh, so our tips would be uh, use the freshest tips. Uh, make sure you know you're harvesting at the right time. Uh, use them in the whirlpool or dry tipping uh, yeah. versus in the boil. And uh, watch your hops. Use complementary hops. And you know perhaps uh, the more tip character you want, maybe the less uh, late hops you you want to do. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we will have more of your questions right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're doing uh, Brew Strong. We're answering your questions. Uh, if you are listening live in the in the uh, watching on Facebook, uh, in the comments section, you should be able to ask questions. And uh, John is going to try and monitor those for us because we That's don't right. have probably Bevo here today. And uh, she will, uh, or John will, uh, perhaps uh, read your questions live if you are. If you're nice and polite to him. I just realized that in order to view any questions on Facebook, I have to have Facebook open. Yes, that would help uh, immensely. (laughs) Uh, In the meantime, uh, I can, I can uh, pull up another question. Uh, Paul uh, is asking, how do I properly affix a celebrator doppelbock goat on a brew in a bag setup? Since I don't have a true mash tun, am I out of luck? Great question, Paul. You know, the celebrator Doppelbach goat is a critical part of any brewing setup. It is what brings luck to uh, the quality of your brew. And so I always use that. And I noticed that when I put one on my mash tun, I started winning uh, a lot more awards. So to this day, I have a uh, Doppelbach, (laughs) Iger celebrator Doppelbach goat hanging on a mash tun. Matter of fact, it's hanging here in, in the brewery at Heretics too. So uh, there's a couple of rules that must apply. First off, uh, you have to purchase the bottle of Celebrator Doppelbach. You can't like just, you know, steal it or something like that. You cannot just take the goat off of one of those things at your local BevMo and hang that on there. That's bad juju. Uh, what you have to do is uh, drink the... Uh, Doppelbach, the celebrator, and then you hang it on your mash tun. Of course, brew in a bag. I th- I would think you could hang that anywhere on the kettle because that kettle with brew in a bag uh, becomes your mash tun. Isn't that correct, John? Um, sorry, I was fiddling <laughs> with Facebook, <laughs> trying to sort out so the uh, chat feature on it. Checking uh, what uh, people's updates, what their kids are doing. Uh, pretty pictures <laughs> of cats and dogs. No, no, um, actually, uh, 
Michael asked dosage rate for spruce tips, for uh, example, if I'm looking at the right comment section. Uh, but yeah, the, right. the question you just asked me was? Uh, brew in a bag where you yeah. hang the goats. Oh, oh, oh. I, um, I get right on that kettle because that's technically your mash tun. Yeah, and I would even like you could tie it to the drawstring of the bag as well. Right. If you have such. Yes. Uh, interesting story. Uh, the folks uh, from Iyengar told me uh, I we ordered like 25 kegs of Iyengar beer for our Oktoberfest. Right. Absolutely delicious. And so uh, the rep came out and I told the rep about this Iyengar goat story. And she's like, she's never heard of it before. And so I showed her and she was just, she sent pictures back to Iyengar about the goat and all this. And she told me that the goat was, they started doing that back in the day to support their local uh, community around the brewery. It was uh, tough times at some point. And uh, so they got the community producing these little goats to put on the bottles. Uh-huh. And then when times improved, they were like, okay, we can stop making the goats now. Everyone's like, oh, no, 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 you got to keep making the goat. <laughs> yeah. So that's how the goat came to pass. It was in support of their community, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, great, that's great interesting. Uh, so uh, that's how you put the, uh, the goat on there. All right. So uh, volume of spruce tips. Yes. Um, yeah. The, how, what's the dosage rate? Yeah. He asks. Well, in five gallons, I've seen anywhere from, you know, quarter ounce of just the tippy tip tips to, you know, half a pound. You know, uh, I've seen, I've seen, uh, you know, some pretty heavy dosages. I, I think it depends a lot on what is, how fresh it is, how much yep. it, uh, of a character you want, how malty the resulting beer is going to be, the maltier it is. You know, the sweeter and the more kind of crystal caramel you have in there, the more it's going to suppress that character. So you need to kind of be careful about um, balancing those two. If you do it in a really pale, light beer that's very dry, it won't take much spruce tips. So it's going to depend on the beer. If you do some big, heavy, dark beer like a Russian Imperial Stout, it takes quite a bit. Uh, For a general pale ale, let's say, uh, I don't know, I might start somewhere around, you know, four ounces. I like, I like it. My spruce beers to be pretty sprucey. And I think that that, you know, depending on where you pick them, you know, that's, it's going to, going to affect things. That sounds reasonable. Yeah. You'll go with that. Yep. Uh, let's see here. We have a question um, uh, regarding sparging speed. Um, says uh, he's at once know the reasoning. This is John Granger wants to know the reasoning behind sparge speed, i.e. one quart per minute. Um, what are the pros and cons of sparging slower or faster? Well, s- slower it takes you more time. Uh, faster, you generally get less extract. You get the most extract from um, – a, a, a slow uh, sparge. The slower the sparge, the better the extract seems to be. And this is if you are fly sparging. If you are putting water in on the top and you are letting that slowly percolate through, uh, if it rinses through real quick, you may not extract every bit. If you let it sit there for a while, it will extract more uh, sugars from within inside the grains. It will uh, kind of 
you know, reach a, uh, osmotic gradient that across there and you'll, right. you'll extract more out. So that's uh, the benefit to going slower. I've always, uh, advocated going slower. Um, tends to seem like you get a clearer wort and you get more wort, more sugars. Um, but you know, if you're doing something like brew in a bag, that doesn't really apply unless you're going to, you know, rinse out the bag again, you know, you're going to dunk it in, uh, uh, more water. If you did, then you'd want to let it sit for a bit, you know, yeah. to extract more versus you know, just bouncing it in, you know, kind of think about it that way. Yeah. Hey, John. Yeah. Um, green grist size, you know, in general, the, the crush size has, is a factor. Um, the finer the crush, the easier it is to elute the sugars from the grain. Uh, and the, the faster you could theoretically sparge. However, at very fine grist size, it is the resistance to flow through that bed can be quite high. So there is a trade-off there. Um, in general, I think, it, as Jamil said, the guidelines for sparge speed are you want to go slow enough that you are rinsing the grain rather than uh, risking channeling around the bed or, you know, preferentially through the bed and missing out on a lot of extract in, in the grain bed. Uh, you want to drain or sparge slow enough that you uniformly rinse the grain bed of the sugar that's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the faster you go, the more, more likely you are to get some channeling. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Paul, again, of the, the goat question, also asked, I've been brewing a lime pie goza with great success. My recipe uses a zest of five limes. Mm. Is zesting the limes better than just throwing five limes in? I understand the rind is to be avoided as much as possible, but if I threw in the whole lime, would the rind ever get in contact with the beer? That's an interesting question. Um He's talking about that white pith layer, which is quite bitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't know. I've never thrown in whole limes. I think you might run into a couple of problems. One is the limes may float. Yeah. Uh, lessening the contact with the, uh, the skin and the, and the wort. The other is, um, that you might uh, not really extract all of the uh, the goodness of the of the skin because uh, you know you're not cutting it open when you when you take a peeler and, and peel it off or if you take a zester and and zest the limes I think maybe you expose more of the cells of the the uh, skin get more oil out more more oil out for more flavor. Um, if it were me, I would just quickly run the zester, you know, across uh, the, the limes. It's only five limes, pretty quick. Um, yeah, yeah. I would, I would There's there've been a couple of orange uh, brews, you know, ales uh, that I've had over the years, various breweries. Um, very often, just in the for expedience' sake, they would crush the whole orange and throw the whole orange in there. Um, is a way to speed up the process. And right. those beers very often had uh, a bitter aftertaste from the rind um, that you don't get when you zest. Uh, 
So I think if you're looking for that, a nice touch of, you know, citrus flavor, zesting is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got a question here from Jimmy Jacobson. Okay. He asked, is fly sparge or batch sparge better for a drink cooler mash tun with a stainless braided hose as the filter instead of a manifold or false bottom? And you've always used false bottoms, Jamil, I believe. I've yes. used various. Um, I th- the, th- the batch sparging is a very easy way to go, um, especially with a manifold or a stainless steel braid. The caveat to batch sparging is you have to drain the wort completely. If you don't drain it completely, and then refill, um, you lose a lot of extract because um, you, you, you don't get uniform rinsing with a, a braided hose usually. So it, it depends on draining all of that first running's work, which is your highest quality and, and highest yield work uh, before you introduce more water. I will say one of the advantages to batch sparging and something like that is, uh, you know, when you add the second batch of water, you can mix up the, the grains again with the water and you don't have to worry about channeling or, or anything right, like that. Right. It makes it pretty homogeneous and then, you know, you, you extract it out. You may not get the absolute maximum possible extract from, uh, you know, batch sparging like that, but it's really close and it's really not a problem. You know, you can always just throw in a little more grain if, if that's what it takes. Yeah. yeah. I would use whatever method makes you, makes you happy and comfortable. And, be- and to continue on that thought these days, I find myself doing no sparge brewing most of the time. Uh, because again, as you say, you just throw in another pound of grain, another, you know, f- 5% of the grain bill. Right. And you're done. You don't have to sparge. You drain your full boil volume in one go, and you're ready to boil. Um, I will say that no sparge brewing, um, there's a definite uh, benefit to it where, uh, you know, flavor-wise, you're going to get a richer, maltier uh, character which can be good in some styles. It can be to your detriment in other styles. It depends on if, if a beer traditionally was sparged and extract a bit more of the tannin, a bit more of that husk and grainy material, that character is part of the style, then you're going to want that. Uh, but in general, you get more flavor and a nicer flavor from no sparge like John's talking about, especially in something, if you can do it in something like a Bach, uh, you yeah. know, or certain German lagers, uh, you know, it, it can be really nice. Um, but in things that were tended to be extracted more, you need to, you, you want the sparge then. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll more, have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. 
We're talking live. And if you're watching on uh, Facebook, you can ask your questions there in the, in the, in the comment section. And uh, the lovely John Palmer will uh, <laughs> observe your questions and, and relay them. Uh, one of the things we were talking about brewing was a, uh, a shandy type beer. Oh. Uh, and uh, I've got a couple ideas for it. But uh, one of the... <laughs> One of the things is we're going to come up with a name and you know how they have an Arnold Palmer. Oh yeah. We're going to call it a John Palmer. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, what will John Palmer think? I'm like, ah, he'll be pleased. It'll be, be all right with it. It'll be fun. So uh, yeah, expect to see a, a John Palmer beer come out. <laughs> That'd be cool. Because <laughs> there's a John Daly. Right, which is Arnold Palmer with alcohol. Oh, okay. I right? didn't remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're going to call it a John Palmer. It's kind of a combination of the two. Thought that that was fun. You know who else is fun? Our good friends at Brew Chatter. Uh, yes. Josh and, and RJ, good folks. Uh, they're they're up near uh, Reno. If you're ever passing through the Reno area, uh, they're out out in Sparks, real close there. There's a number of good breweries around them. Good restaurants. It's a cool place to, to visit, and uh, they got a really nice uh, place there. They've got uh, their own little bar, and they, they curate some nice nice beers on. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, uh, head on out there. But they also do a cracking job at uh, their online uh, store. You know, great customer service. You know, rapid responses, rapid shipping, good good prices, uh, good quality, uh, good folks all around. So check them out. Uh, brew chatter at brewchatter.com or our friends uh, Josh and RJ. Tell them we sent you. Uh, send them an email and tell them thank you for helping sponsor the show. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what was the question I was going to? Uh, Fernando was asking In addition to brewing beer, I recently started brewing kombucha. While trying to determine my ABV for it, I found forum posts and pages noting that you cannot actually accurately determine final gravity with a hydrometer for kombucha. Why is it different than beer? With some mixed fermented wild beers, you might get lactic acid and acetic acid generated, which is why it, why it is never mentioned in this case. Uh, does lactic or acetic acid influence the hydrometer readings not only for kombucha, but also for mixed fermented beers where it won't be possible to determine the final gravity with the hydrometer. Thanks, Fernando. Um, well, a hydrometer reading is always a hydrometer reading. It is a measure of the relative buoyancy uh, of that solution versus plain water. Um, and so, yeah, if you have some amount of acid in, yeah, that's that's going to affect what we would normally perceive as being, you know, an alcohol difference or a, mainly a drop in sugar, with sugar being the primary component of wort, being the and and residual carbohydrates still being uh, a primary component of the resulting beer. In the case of kombucha, yeah, you have a little bit of acid. I wouldn't think substantial amounts. What you also may have, though, is suspended solids. And uh, suspended solids will also affect hydrometer readings. 
I proved this to myself once with a solution of cornstarch in cold water. Um, you know, very high gravity when it's all in suspension. You wait 30 minutes and that all settles to the bottom and you're right back at a, a gravity of zero, you know, for plain water. So, yeah, you watch your suspended solids when you're doing hydrometer readings. There you go. Um, and, you know, most uh, hydrometer readings to determine alcohol, unless it's something very simple, it, it can be, you know, quite far off. Um, there's calculators to help with that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody comes up with a kombucha setting for one of these, you know, maybe the uh, brewer's yeah. friend people want to throw in a, a kombucha setting or something. I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure how much difference it would make. But, uh, you know, it's just in general, if you need to know precisely, you can send it out to a lab or you can uh, do a distillation to determine uh, if you have the tools to do a very precise uh, measurements, you can do a distillation to tell you what the ABV is as well. Alrighty. Using glycol for a counterflow chiller and steam condenser. Okay, Jacob is uh, asking, Hello, Jamil and John. I am a very, I am very much a novice to the brewing world. Currently, I'm only doing one gallon to five gallon extract batches on my own, and I have only helped others do one barrel all grain recipes. I've been binge reading several of John's books and listening to your podcast every chance I get. My question is, can a glycol chiller be used in a counterflow chiller to cool the wort? Also, can it be used in a steam condenser during the boiling process if that condenser is made with internal tubing to avoid mixing? This would help reduce the amount of water that is used during the chilling and condensing process. Thanks again for sharing all of your great expertise and information. Thanks, Jacob. P.S. I don't have any of this equipment. I'm just asking. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can use a uh, glycol for that. Um, the issue is, you know, it works. It's just, what do you do with the glycol? If you're returning it to your reservoir that you've chilled down, because a glycol chiller sized big enough to handle uh, a substantial, you know, a steam condenser or a um, counterflow chiller, the uh, problem is that you'd have to size up that chiller massively. The way glycol chillers are generally sized is that you have a reservoir of, you know, 100 gallons or whatever it might be, 1,000 gallons. And your glycol chiller chills the liquid down over time and gets it nice and cold. And then you take some out, you know, for chilling down a fermenter and it goes back in and, you know, all this happens throughout the day, but there's times when there's not so much load and the chiller is able to keep up. If you try and dump a ton of heat into the glycol at once, generally the, the chillers start running continuously, but you'll be uh, at a much higher temperature. So you you struggle with consistency that way. So uh, it can be done. Um, but kind of in a different way. So usually what happens on the chilling side is they will have a, a two-stage chiller. One set of plates is uh, 
cooled by water and that knocks it down to a, a general range. And then you use like the glycol to get it down into, um, you know, lager range or whatever fermentation range you want. And so you're not dumping the entire amount of heat into it, but you're just taking a little bit off. Uh, so that's how they do it with the uh, two-stage chillers on the steam condensers. Um, generally, it's kind of the same situation. If you use glycol for it, um, yeah, you'd be saving water, but you use an extreme amount of power. So generally what happens in commercial breweries is you use water, your, your regular brewing water, and you pass that through um, your steam condenser or your, your plate uh, heat exchanger, and then you collect that water up as hot liquor, and then you use that hot liquor for your next brew. So that's how we do it at Heretic. We have a, a large um, cold liquor tank that we keep it. I think it's around 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Or we, might, we might have warmed it up a little bit. Um, to collect more water when we, when we chill. So, so we have enough hot water for the next batch. Um, so we'll uh, run that through the heat exchanger. We'll, we'll cool the work with that and we collect it in our hot liquor tank. And then we use that for the, the future batches. We just got in a, a little five barrel system that has a steam um, uh, condenser trap. So instead of venting this, you know, eight foot, 10 foot tall, uh, brew plant out the roof, which is 33 feet. <laughs> we, uh, it just has a, a, a U that, um, and a fan that pulls the, the steam down through a, uh, like a shotgun condenser and we run water through that. And then the, the condensate just goes to the drain. So, um, you know, I don't want to say water is uh, cheap or abundant or anything like that. I know there's, you know, there's places that really struggle with water. But one of the things I was told by the, the czar of water in California was that, you know, water really isn't lost uh, in, in a single use. You know, the water gets reused probably seven or eight times before it gets to the sea. And... Um, you know, when you take in water, and for example, in a brewery, and you use it for heating or cleaning or whatever, and it goes down the drain, that water gets processed again, gets put back into the into the system of you know um, uh, rivers and uh, delta and all that, and then people downstream pull more water out, and then they use it, and then after they're done, it goes back, you know, it gets treated again, it gets back in there. And eventually it makes its way down to, you know, the, the ocean, but you know, a lot of it, uh, the water that I brew with and, you know, it ends up going down the drain or when I pee and flush it, it all ends up down in John's, John's neck of the woods eventually. And they <laughs> so they right down there. Right. So I've probably peed in all of the years uh, made in Southern California one time or another. So, uh, enjoy those beers. It's got a little bit of me in every every drop. Now they process it out, and it's it's back to drinkable water. But that's one of the reasons that uh, it's not quite as critical. Like we need to conserve water, but um, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd end up. Uh, it's it's a little more efficient not to uh, uh, struggle with uh, trying to 
chill those things rapidly. So that's. Yeah. I was going to say the heat capacity of water is greater than the glycol solution as well. Mm -hmm. Glycol works great for fermenters where you're doing that slow temperature maintenance and temperature, small temperature change. But uh, yeah, the big reason why we use water to water uh, heat exchangers for the chilling. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Micah asks, Hey guys, hopefully you get to answer this by the end of the decade. <laughs> uh, as I near the end of fermentation, you suggest I raise the temperature in order to give the yeast an extra kick to finish off and get rid of unwanted substances. Should this temperature boost be forced by added, uh, adding a heat source or by just turning off the chilling and letting the ambient room temperature and yeast activity do the raising? Depends on where you live. Right. And you know, what season it is, things like that. Um, yeah. If, uh, if the room's warm enough, uh, you can certainly do that. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, if you don't time it right, like in commercial fermenters, there's no heating element in there and heating them can be very difficult on such a, a large source a lot of pumping and things like that. So uh, for example, we raise the temperature on our loggers to get to a, you know, a diastole rest and clean them up. And uh, we do this by turning the, the cooling, uh, less, adding less and less cooling to it. And if you, if you miss a day, you've really kind of screwed the whole situation. It's going to take a lot longer. It's not going to hit that temperature that you wanted. So you need to be able to um, uh, shut it off, you know, just the right point. Generally in raising temperature and ferments, I always kind of look for that uh, midpoint, the peak of fermentation when it's just starting to slow, where you just, just barely notice that, oh, it looks like it's reached its peak and it's starting to get past its peak. Uh, then I start to take the temperature control off and let it rise from there. And, and that always seemed to work well for me. How about you, John? Yeah, that's essentially it. Um, as you say, it's much difference of scale makes a big difference on what your capabilities are. Um, homebrewing situation uh, here in Southern California, temperatures are generally warm. I can do a diastolus simply by uh, moving the fermenter to a warmer location or turning or turning off or lowering the, or I should say raising the set point on the temperature controller. Um, other places, uh, yeah, you may need to say use a two-stage controller in a fermentation box or area so you can actually apply warm air around the fermenter to help it heat or a firm wrap or some other means of actively heating uh, the fermenter. I always use those uh, homebrewing. I always use those firm wraps. Those, it's it's yeah. essentially a sheet of plastic, printed plastic that uh, is what's used in modern uh, heating pads. And those work great because you can get really nice contact with the surface of the, of the fermenter on that and uh, easy to run a controller on it and, I thought that those did an amazing job. One of the things I would do back in the day when I was brewing loggers was I would put the firm wrap on, I put a two stage controller on it and I would put it inside a refrigerator. And so 
I could, you know, logger, I could keep it in a nice uh, controlled way and I could raise the temperature, lower the, te lower the temperature as much as I wanted. And it worked really well. I was very pleased with that and making loggers. Um, I liked that better than a conical fermenter or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. All right. Uh, let's take our last break. Uh, I've enjoyed this. We haven't done Q&A in, it seems like, months. Yeah. We'll be back right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're enjoying uh, doing another episode of Brew Strong. And, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Got a couple <laughs> questions in the chat room for you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Jacobson asks, have you brewed a New Zealand Pilsner? Is there a certain hopping rate that is best for this style? I'm planning on brewing one in a couple of weeks with Raikau and Waiiti hops and putting them into putting it onto a yeast cake of a light lager that is fermenting now. I have not. Uh, I haven't either. I, 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 they just recently came out with that style designation. I'm not sure exactly what it means. Is that just a lager with uh, New Zealand hops? Is that is that what it is? I believe so. Um, yeah, I'm I'm unfamiliar with the particulars of the style as well. I think it's mainly a pilsner with New Zealand hops, um, right. and okay. so hopping rate would be similar to that of pilsner. I would I would say then that yes, I have brewed a New Zealand uh, uh, lager. Oh. Uh, which uh, is a collab with uh, uh, East Brother uh, Brewing uh, here in California. So we did on the five barrel plant, we just did, uh, uh, oh no, is Galaxy a, a New Zealand hop or is that Australian hop? Yeah, it's actually Australian. Yeah. Uh, so I've made a, an Australian uh, Pilsner then. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we just uh, did that. Uh, I think, you know, the concept is, you know, one of the things I find about that is that, um, you know, you make a great lager, but when you use such expressive hops, uh, such as Galaxy or some of the New Zealand hops uh, that he mentioned, you know, it, it just kind of overwhelms the, the, the lager character. So you can get away with a lot in the lager. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it turns out great. I, I enjoy the flavor. Um, so there you go. I, I guess I haven't brewed a, a New Zealand uh, Pilsner yet. That that I'll put that on my list. Maybe there's some other aspect to it we don't know, but that's because we don't know. Um, total IBUs for a beer that would be somewhere around maybe perhaps uh, thirty to forty IBUs for a, a New Zealand Pilsner. Do you think? You're looking at, I'm thinking most, most loggers are in that uh, one half BU to GU ratio. Um, Pilsner being a hoppier style could approach that three quarters ratio BU to GU. Um, whereas say your IPAs are at the one to one uh, range. Okay. Everybody's, uh, everybody in the world 
is, is going through. The overall impression, the pale, dry, golden-colored, cleanly fermented beer showcasing the characteristic oh. tropical citrusy, fruity, grassy, New Zealand-type hops, medium body, soft mouthfeel, smooth palate, and finish. With a neutral to bready malt base provide the support for this very drinkable, refreshing, comfortable beer. Um, I, I, I did drink some when I was in New Zealand. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Roma appearance. Straw, deep, cold, the color. Most examples are yellow gold. Uh, flavor, medium to high hot bitterness. Cleanly bitter, not harsh. Most prominent in the balance and lasting in the aftertaste. Um, uh, comments, the hop aromatics often have a similar qualities made in New Zealand. Sauvignon Blanc, Blanc wines with uh, tropical, fruity, grassy, melon, lime aromatics, often brewed as a hybrid style in New Zealand using neutral ale yeast at cool temperatures. Limiting the sulfur content of the finished product is important since it can clash with the hop character. Judging in competition styles is best within category 12, pale Commonwealth beer. Uh, largely defined with the original created Emerson's Brewery in the mid-1990s. Uh, New Zealand Pilsner has expanded the in the character as varieties New Zealand hops have expanded. Pilsner uh, uh, malt, maybe a little bit of wheat malt, lager yeast, or very neutral ale yeast. Compared to German pills, not as crisp and dry in the finish with a softer, maltier presentation full body. Uh, no numbers? IBU 2545, SRM 2 to 6. OG 44 to 56, FG uh, 09 to 14, 4.5 to 5.8 uh, ABV. Okay, so yeah, that three quarters to one to one. I've had Emerson's Pilsner. Uh, they have Croucher, Liberty, Panhead, Port Road, Pilsner. I think I had that one. Um, Yeah, um, so Pilsner with uh, modern hops. Okay, sounds good. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Uh, there you go. So I have not brewed one. Uh, let's see here. Time for one more. Yeah. I got a. Do you have a question? I got a question from Tomas Sertautis. Yeah, go ahead. Ask you. He's asking about the thickness amount of yeast on the bottom of the bottle affect aging of strong beers like barley wine. He says, I've got about two to three millimeters yeast layer on the bottom of the bottle uh, and decided not to cold crash. Um, let's see. With that much yeast still in suspicion, didn't want to add fresh yeast while bottling. Right. Any pointers for him as far as... Uh, getting rid of any yeast in the bottle or if this is too much? Well, it does sound like a considerable amount of yeast. And generally you don't want that amount of yeast. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, a Sierra Nevada pale ale, you'll see that it's got uh, you know, a fine dusting across the bottom instead of, you know, a thick and yep. uh, generally they add fresh yeast to do that. And, um, you know, it depends on the barley wine, it depends on the strength of the barley wine, what yeast was used and how durable it is. Um, if it is, 
you know, if the yeast is tired and it's high ABV, it's probably better to, uh, you know, chill the beer, get the, get the yeast out, you know, yeah. transfer off into a, into a bottling bucket with uh, a fresh dose of yeast and your, and your priming sugar. And that way you're insured getting good, uh, consistent from, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you've already bottled and you've got two to three millimeters, um, I mean, one of the things you could do is just, if it's already, if they've carbonated up well, I would just keep them cold and then the yeast won't deteriorate as quick. One of the things you're trying to avoid is the yeast breaking down and giving you that uh, meaty, um, rubbery, bottleized, rubbery yeast uh, character. Um, So, you know, if you store it cold, once it's carbonated, that will help, uh, delay that uh, from happening. And so, uh, you know, stored at fridge temperatures, you know, probably be a year and you, you really won't notice uh, those flavors. And, um, you know, the, the best way to get the beer off the yeast, uh, drink the beer, or you could, I've heard of people opening up bottles, pouring them into a keg, you know, doing that whole thing. <laughs> um, I don't know, not, not for me. I, I just brew another beer and yeah. <laughs> start over. But that's how I am. Yeah. He says it was ten and a half percent alcohol, this barley wine. So it's that's a pretty substantial uh right. alcohol level. Yeah. Um I I think I think what you said as far as chilling it to keep it fresh as long as possible, uh, to avoid those autolysis flavors is is good good way to go. Right. Okay. I think that's it. We'll wrap this up. And then if you're listening live, we're going to have Martin Cornell on in just a moment. And uh, we'll be doing uh, bird nails. So stay tuned. Until then, everybody, Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong, everyone. Bye.